Over the past couple of episodes, we've been talking about the North American coyote through the lens of these nine rules that Chuck Jones put together for writing the old Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. Part one in this series, by the way, if you haven't listened to parts one and two, then you need to go back and listen to those before you get into this one. But part one covered rules one, two, and three. The Roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep beep. No outside force can harm the coyote, only his own ineptitude or the failure of the Acme products. And the coyote could stop any time, if he were not a fanatic. Part two got into the next three rules. No dialogue ever, except beep beep. The Roadrunner must stay on the road, otherwise, logically, he would not be called the Roadrunner. And all action must be confined to the natural environment of the two characters, the Southwest American Desert. For this final installment, we have Jones's last three roles, plus one more. One that he never wrote down, but that he absolutely had to follow in order for the cartoon franchise to work. Welcome to Beastiary, and the final episode in our mini-series, Simple Coyote Math. I'm Meg Sipis, and this is Eric Botts with role number seven. All materials, tolls, weapons, or mechanical conveniences must be obtained from the Acme Corporation. We'll be back after a quick break. In 1975, just three short years after Nixon banned cyanide and other toxicants on federal land, Gerald Ford's administration lifted that ban, giving state and local governments free reign in deciding how to deal with predators. Many chose M44 cyanide traps, descendants of the coyote getter. These spring-activated devices embed in the ground and, When not dressed with fur, they look like sprinkler heads. According to the Daily Mail, in 2016, they killed some 12,500 coyotes. The spring mechanism, which replaced the getter's explosive trigger, makes them considerably safer. But in the last 20 years, they've managed to kill 40 dogs and injure several people. After this device explodes in a rural area just outside of Pocatello, killing a dog and hurting a 14-year-old boy. In March of 2017, outside Pocatello, Idaho, a 14-year-old boy and his dog became a part of that statistic when they investigated an M44. By the grace of God, I'm still alive. Canyon Mansfield could be dead, and his parents... He watched my dog suffocate, and he almost died himself. ...are outraged. It was Thursday afternoon when the 14-year-old was on a walk with his dog Casey above a hill behind their Pocatello home. I see this little, like, pipe that looked like a sprinkler sticking out of the ground. And so I go over and I inspect it and I touch it and then it like pops, makes a pop sound. 
and it spews orange gas everywhere. The orange gas was cyanide, and the wind blew it straight into Casey's face. And I see him in some bushes, like... Wildlife services had placed a trap near the boy's home, but they failed to follow USDA guidelines that require warning signs in both English and Spanish nearby. He, like, he had this red stuff coming out of his mouth, and... In response to the incident, Idaho temporarily banned cyanide traps on all lands, private and public. Several neighbors all told me one USDA representative told them he removed all of the devices, but couldn't tell them how he was able to keep track of where they were all placed. Mark Mansfield. We didn't know anything about it. There were no neighborhood notifications. The boy's father told the Daily Mail, this is a good first step, but let's keep going. We've seen these types of moratoriums in the past, and the federal government keeps bringing them back. Environmental groups in Montana seem to agree. Animal welfare groups are filing lawsuits against the government. Having filed a lawsuit calling for a ban across the United States, arguing that M44s and compound 1080, that's the cyanide-based poison used in the traps, violate the Endangered Species Act. Each state, commonwealth, park, county, municipality, and locality treats coyotes differently. Utah's Predator Control Program pays $50 for each properly documented kill. And in 2016, South Carolina decided to start offering a $1,000 minimum reward for the killing of tagged coyotes. Colvin's Animal Damage Control, a trapping company in central Virginia, claims on its website the coyote is legally classified as a nuisance species and may be killed at any time. Except, coyotes may not be killed with a gun, firearm, or other weapon on Sunday. Such methods of dispatch are, apparently, too bloody for the Sabbath. Wildlife managers in Denver are experimenting with artificial selection, weeding out coyotes with undesirable traits instead of trying to exterminate all of them. The goal is a more docile species, somewhat domesticated in that it would be less aggressive, but also anti-domesticated in that it would be less likely to approach humans than its urbanized counterparts. In a New York Times opinion piece, Dan Flores, author of Coyote America, estimates that Wildlife Services spends around $140 million a year to kill coyotes and other undesirable animals. Between 2006 and 2011, the agency killed some 512,710 coyotes. Rule number eight, whenever possible, make gravity the coyote's greatest enemy.
Jones' eighth rule for the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons is, of course, unconcerned with anything resembling natural history, biology, anecdotal observation, or mythology. In a sense, it's a slapstick, cartoonish form of magical thinking meant to elicit laughs at the coyote's expense. When humans attempt to exterminate coyotes, we also engage in a form of magical thinking at our own expense. You might expect, given the number of coyotes that we kill each year and the massive incentives for killing more, that the animal would be endangered or at risk of becoming so. Nonetheless, despite the high kill count, despite bounty incentives, despite excluding coyotes from wildlife protection laws, and despite the blood sport into which many coyote hunts devolve, coyote numbers continue to flourish to the extent that National Geographic estimates their populations are likely at an all-time high. myth versus fact. I'm going to put a statement up here and you guys can tell me whether you think it is a myth or a fact. Are you ready? Here we go. On March 20, 2017, Jeffco Open Space, a government organization in Jefferson County, Colorado, released a three-part video series called Coyote Country. Coyotes are often mistaken for wolves, foxes, and domestic dogs, and their actual weight is often overstated. The description given on YouTube in part one of the video series, calls Mary Ann Bonnell the visitor services manager and Mythbuster. Why do people tell us that I saw a coyote and it was 85 pounds? They're scared of them. It's a predator, right? And what does your brain do? I'm a scuba diver and every time I see a barracuda, it's gotta be nine feet, right? She presents to visitors of Jefferson County Public Parks and Trails on coyote myths. Near the end of her presentation, Bonnell explains a basic principle for understanding coyote populations. We can get rid of the coyotes, myth or fact. So you see this a lot. Every time there's a story about a coyote kills a dog in someone's backyard, someone writes in and says, just get rid of them. Okay? Well, there's some trouble with that. So the myth is you can't get rid of them because there will always be a replacement coyote. So you remove a coyote and you don't change anything about habitat or human behavior, what will you get in its place? The transient coyotes. So when you remove a coyote, and actually one situation in Utah, uh, a male was killed by a rancher, and the female actually left her territory, found a male, and brought him back. Like, you're coming with me, buddy. And brought him back, and they lived happily ever after, as coyotes do. So, so the thing is, the important thing to remember when you're talking about coyotes is very simple math. One minus one equals one. Okay, so we and there you have it. Simple coyote math. One minus one equals one. Rule number nine, the coyote is always more humiliated than harmed by his failures.
The late American folklorist, writer, and newspaper columnist J. Frank Dobie penned what is among the most famous books about coyotes, The Voice of the Coyote, in 1949, originally intending to explore the animal's natural history. The finished product, though, blended that natural history with mythology, because Dobie concluded nobody can understand one without some knowledge of the other. Coyote the animal and Coyote the myth are like the Catholic Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, at once self-same and discreet. Renata Rosado describes the act of mourning what one has destroyed as imperialist nostalgia. She writes of late 19th century ethnographers and anthropologists who set out on the heels of Euro-American genocide against native tribes to preserve the stories and experiences of their cultures. The goal was simple collection. Native folklore had inherent value. White European and Euro-American analysis was neither necessary nor desirable. But in the spirit of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, one cannot study a thing without changing it. Recording the oral traditions of native tribes, transforming speech into written and often translated texts, inevitably changes the object of preservation. As Arlene Ring notes in her discussion of Rosaldo's concept, writers like Barry Lopez went further, engaging in what's called ethnopoetics, examining and restructuring oral tales for the sake of understanding them and to better appeal to Euro-American readers. Such retellings are the versions of native stories that have propagated among readers of English. Animals take primary roles in many of them, and Coyote is often their protagonist. A shapeshifter, he takes many forms in the vast landscape of native lore. Apache tribes tell of coyote tricking owl and coyote and fox going head to head in a battle of wits. Caddo tales recount how man took revenge on coyote and why he is always hungry. In one Shoshone tale, coyote steals fire for man as a thieving hero, the Native American Prometheus. Depending on the tribe's lore, coyote may be a thief or fool or hero or all three at once. The Comanche present him as savior, the Navajo a god. He is best known though as a trickster. Like Wiley Coyote, the coyote of native myth is, at his core, crafty, cunning, sly, and artful. But also like Wiley, the native coyote is often a fool, enduring failure and humiliation upon failure and humiliation, only to return and try again. And this is the fate that old man ascribes him in Barry Lopez telling of Coyote Keeps His Name. Old man informs the animals that the new people are coming and that all the animals must take new names. 
They are to choose their names at dawn in Old Man's Cabin on a first-come, first-served basis. As Old Man explains to them, the first one to come may choose any name he wants. The next person will take any other name. That is the way it will go. And to each person, I will give some work to do. Coyote is determined to arrive at sunup to take one of three powerful names. Grizzly bear, eagle, or salmon. But despite his best effort to stay awake through the night by propping his eyelids open with small twigs, Coyote passes out with his eyes wide open. He sleeps very late and arrives after every other name has been taken. But old man tells him, Imitator, you must keep your name. I wanted you to have that name, and so I made you sleep late. I have important work for you to do. So Coyote, Imitator, is to be the chief of the new people. He is to show them how to dress, how to sing, how to shoot an arrow. But you will do foolish things too, says old man. And for this, the new people will laugh at you. You cannot help it. This will be your way. To make your work easier, old man enables him to change into anything, to talk to anything and hear anything talk, except the water. And he also grants Coyote immortality. If you die, he says, you will come back to life. Though Coyote fails, humiliated because he must keep the name that no one wanted, he becomes teacher and savior to humanity. There's another tale called Coyote Visits the Land of the Dead, and in some versions of it, he resembles the Greek Pandora. In other versions, he's a lazy and selfish god, bearing similarities to the African trickster Anansi. And in yet others, he seems to recall the biblical character Lot. But in the version that Meg is about to tell, he is most akin to the tragic Greek hero Orpheus left to journey home, widowed and alone. At the top of the episode, Meg mentioned one last rule that Jones never bothered to write down. It was obvious because, well, first of all, the series was made for kids, and because second, without either character, the series could not continue. The Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons would never have been possible were it not for the immortality of its titular characters. The unwritten rule. There is no death.
Winter had been harsh and full of sorrow. It left no one untouched, including Coyote. His own wife had fallen to illness and died. Coyote could not bear the loss. He wept endlessly, and eventually the other animals couldn't stand to see him still in so much pain. Eagle tried especially hard to lift Coyote's spirits. Spring is upon us, he told Coyote, but even the promise of spring could not stop Coyote's howling. His loneliness rivaled the night. One day, though, the spirit of death came to Coyote and said, Stop this crying. I know where your wife is, and I will take you to her. But listen very carefully, for you must do exactly as I say. Yes, Coyote promised. Come along then, the dust spirit commanded. Follow me. Coyote was eager to do what he was told, but there was a problem. The spirit, it seemed, was nearly invisible in the daylight. I shall carry something that you can see. Do you have something that your wife loved? That will do best. Coyote, not one to give things away willingly, especially those of his late wife, reluctantly handed the spirit the feather that she used to wear when dancing. They began their journey to the land of the dead. In daylight, Coyote could see only the feather floating in the wind just ahead of him. But under the moon, it disappeared and gave way to the shimmering image of the death spirit. Not long into their journey, they came upon a wide open plain. Bursts of snow swiped at Coyote's nose. The death spirit stopped. Now, it said, you must do exactly as I say, and you must do as I do. He pointed ahead. What a mighty fine group of horses. Coyote saw no horses, but pointed ahead and repeated. The dust spirit moved forward, so Coyote did too. They walked until the dust spirit announced, There's the longhouse. Coyote echoed the words and observed the dust spirit as it bent down, lifted the invisible door, and crawled into the invisible longhouse. Coyote, still unseeing, followed suit. Take a seat, the dust spirit told him. Coyote sat and looked out at the open plain. You are next to your wife, the death spirit said, and now your wife will serve us something warm. Coyote looked around eagerly, but still saw nothing, only the open plain and the floating feather and the death spirit silhouette. He mimicked the spirit cupping its hands before its chest. They both drank from their hands, and though Coyote still saw nothing, Warmth filled him as he consumed the invisible drink. We must wait for nightfall, the spirit told him. So Coyote curled into himself and fell into a light slumber. He awoke to drums. When he opened his eyes, he found himself not in the open plain, but in the longhouse. Shadowy figures danced around him, old friends that had long since passed into the land of the dead and he saw her, his wife. He greeted her with such joy, and they talked and danced through the night. But when the sun rose, all the spirits, including his wife, disappeared. Once more, the open plains surrounded him. Under the beating sun, Coyote curled into himself and slept. When night came again, he once more awoke to drums and the dancing spirits of his friends and his wife. 
and this is how it was. Coyote would dance through the night with his wife and his friends. By day, he would slumber on the open plain. Eventually, though, the dust spirit told him, you must go. Coyote did not want to leave his wife to go back to howling his loneliness through the night. But before he could argue, the death spirit silenced him. You may take your wife with you, but only if you do exactly as I say. You will follow your wife as you followed me for five days over five mountains. On day six, when you see your home in the distance, you may touch her. Do not touch your wife before then. The death spirit paused again. If you do not do exactly as I say, the spirits of the dead will never again be able to return to the land of the living. The death spirit then tied the feather in the hair of Coyote's wife so that he could follow the feather by day and her spirit by night. They crossed the first mountain on the first day, the second mountain on the second day. And as the days passed, Coyote found that he no longer needed to watch the feather. The farther they traveled, the more he could see his wife. On the fifth night, they made camp on the fifth mountain. Coyote, longing for his wife, enamored by the fire's reflection in her hair, jumped over the flames to take her in his arms. Don't, she pleaded before vanishing into thin air, leaving him to cradle the lingering emptiness. Coyote howled into the night as her feather floated to the ground. Only the feather and the weeping wind remained. The death spirit appeared before Coyote. Now, no spirit will ever return from the dead. Coyote traversed again the five mountains until he reached the open plain. Though he saw nothing, he stopped and pointed. What a mighty fine group of horses. Then he walked on. There is the longhouse. He bent down as if opening a door and crawled in on his knees. He sat and cupped his hands and drank from them. But this time, he felt no warmth. He waited for nightfall for the drums and dancing spirits. But there was only wind and darkness. So he began the long journey home.
This series was written and produced by Meg and myself with editorial assistance from Rigel Kaufman. Eric produces our music and edits the show. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. Our website is bestiarypod.org. If you have an idea for an episode, email me. I'm eric at bestiarypod.org. And you can also contact us on Facebook and Twitter at bestiarypod. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Until then, thanks for listening.